with Pastor Larry Osborne in just a second. He'll be up here. I do want to ask if, you, if there's a chair between you and the next person, if you could squeeze in. We still have people trying to find seats, and there are no extra seats uh, available for us. So you need a human space for the next one, maybe. How many of y'all enjoying our conference so far? Church 299. We planted a little over five years ago, and my wife and I were about 20 years of ministry when we started the church. We had no idea how to go from zero, like our family of five, to an actual church. And I had a friend tell us about Ark, and they kind of came in and just mobilized the vision that God had given us as a church. And they've not only given us the principles and practices, but relationships. And I want to encourage you while you're at this conference. I know you've probably heard this a million times. You probably actually have. <laughs> to make some friends, make some connections, and, and allow God to use those connections to strengthen you. And today, I, it's really an honor of mine to, to introduce to you Pastor Larry Osborne. He pastors North Coast Church, and he's been there since 1980. He's grown the church of 128 people, over 12,000 people on weekends. Uh, they're not only a, a great church, but they've also been known as one of the most influential churches in our nation because of how they run their multi-site uh, ministry and also how they integrate their small groups uh, into their sermon series. And so he's not only a, a great church builder, but he's a great thinker about the church, and he's also a great author. One of the, I've read several of his books before he kicked off City Point, uh, Sticky Teams and Sticky Leaders and, uh, and then Sticky Church. And, and those are great books. If you're hungry to develop your leadership side, don't only just listen to him today, but go out and buy his books because they will change the way you do ministry. So I know you don't hear from me any longer, so Pastor Larry, we're welcome. that are coming out are sticky buns, sticky fingers, quite a few, so uh, Hey, let me uh, uh, say just uh, even a word about, uh, today I want you to catch my heart, just not not just the methodology. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm probably best known for all of my leadership books and a series of others, but I uh, my publishers actually hate it because uh, I also write about discipleship a ton, and they say, nobody knows what your brand is. It's like, are you a cookbook writer or a mystery writer, which is a big one. And, but I've always felt like uh, leadership without discipleship is an absolute waste of time, okay? But a dream of discipleship without understanding leadership is a pipe dream. And so hopefully uh, in your ministry or the things that I have the opportunity to share, either in writing or speaking, uh, that they will kind of push those two things together because there are two sides of the coin we need. The elephant in the room, whenever you talk about the kind of things we're going to talk about now, the practical lessons of ministry, is, well, where's the Bible verse on that? Where's the Bible verse on that? And you know the Bible really says nothing about leadership for a very good reason, because all of the New Testament churches, where did they meet? Talk to me. They met at home, okay? Now, I don't know a ton about house churches, but I know this. They don't have a governing board, <laughs> right? It's whatever Aunt Martha says is going to happen, happens, Okay. And, uh, and, and, uh, and until there was great mobility, the car, you, you know, the car became ubiquitous, there were little neighborhoods that people lived in for nearly 2,000 years, 1,900 years of Christianity. And uh, you had the same job as your father did, and, and people lived in the same area. So pastors were much more pure shepherds and chaplains, and they didn't need to be leaders because they weren't leading anything very large. I hope you understand that if your church is 200 today, 
that historically you have a massive church. In this culture, you talk about, well, we're just a tiny little church. No, dude. You are a massive, massive church historically. And there has been little done to teach us how to do ministry in this environment because there's been little time in human history where those things were needed. Uh, in fact, even the idea of a multiple staff, we love to plant churches now, right, with uh, teams and all of that. There weren't even multiple staffs. A house church doesn't have a multiple staff, doesn't have so much a team. It just has Jesus followers who are working together to influence others. So in the rest of our time today, what I want to talk to you about is uh, building teams and why some teams win and most don't. Uh, what, what are the differences between a winning team and a losing team? And I almost forgot, I, I like to do this for my wife because she never believes anybody actually comes to hear me. <laughs> so you all smile and say amen, huh? Oh, there you go. Okay. Hands uh, through it. She goes, ah, nobody ever comes. I go, well, you're right, usually. Okay. Uh, I'm going to put it in this framework for those of you that are taking notes. I'm going to say winning teams do something and losing teams do something else. Winning teams have great players. Okay? Excuse me. Let me step back. I said that totally wrong. I'm sorry. Winning teams have winning players. Losing teams have great players. Okay? There is a difference between a winner that plays well on the team and a gifted person who plays well in their particular lane, but doesn't care about anything else but their particular lane. Uh, a number of years ago, I came across a study that uh, kind of blew my mind. Uh, it was a, a study uh, about three decades of uh, Canadian, European, and American fast-tracked individuals uh, in the corporate setting. And so what they did is they said, we're going we're to track these uh, fast-track people in these large corporations, and we're going to ask this question. Who got derailed and who rose to the top? And what are the common denominators among those who got derailed and didn't make it to the top and those who made it to the top? I think there were 14 common uh, derailment factors, 14 common success factors, but it was the first two derailment factors that jumped out at me. And I want to give them to you. Because, you know, uh, you never put anybody on your team unless you think they're actually going to be helpful. Would you agree? Yeah. And if you got choices, and I realize those first few days of the church plan, if you breathe, you're on my team. <laughs> but once you get a little more cautious, okay, and uh, uh, you start to say, no, you only want winners. Well, when it came to these fast track people, companies don't go, hey, she looks like a loser. Let's put her on fast track and see what happens. <laughs> They only put on the fast track top MBA students, successful people who've been rising up, whatever it would be. So they think they're going to rise to the top, and the fast track is to help them get there better, prepared, and faster. And yet a bunch got derailed. Well, in this 30-year study, here were the number one and two derailment factors. The number one derailment factor was poor people skills. Losing teams might have great players, but they've got great players with poor people skills. They did not play well in the sandbox. <laughs> they did their job well, but they didn't do it well with others. The second most common derailment factor was this, the inability to adapt. They weren't flexible. Uh, one of my kids is a brain on a stick, and it does 
very well in school and then went to a prestigious MBA program and did very well. And then when it was time for him to get his first true career job, he'd had other jobs before and performed very well, here was the big change. Prior to that, all of his success had been because he followed someone else's syllabus. Right? And there are a lot of people who are very successful as long as you lay out the plan for them, you give them the syllabus, and they can run down that track faster than anybody else to do it really well. But here's what happens in the first day in the business world at your first job. Everything changes. And is that not true of ministry as well? Okay. Uh, I mean, the Apostle Paul was in his flowing smoke when he said, all things for all people, that I might reach just some. That's just how ministry goes. Uh, anything you think about the next three or four years in terms of a game plan, if you go beyond a three-year plan, you are absolutely wasting your time because by the time you get there, ain't nothing going to be the same. You know, it, it changes. And so what they found is they were very gifted people, but they didn't have people skills and they weren't flexible. So think about that for just a moment. Those who've been in some form of ministry long enough that you've had your heart broken by people you thought were going to be incredibly helpful, uh, a great board member, a great staff member, a key volunteer, think of those who have broken your heart the most. And I will bet you that almost without fail, those are the one of those two things is what caused it. You know, you would kind of say, oh, this is how we're going to do stuff, and, and it wasn't working anymore. So you decided, no, we need to do another methodology, same mission, same values, but we need to take another route, and they just couldn't go along in that route. You know? Uh, by the way, a little sidebar here for free. When you put your methodology together, I hope it's biblically based. I mean, I'm an unapologetic Bible guy. I got a Bible verse for everything, even if it's out of context. <laughs> So everything's running through a biblical grid, but here's what you would find at North Coast Church. We never tack a Bible verse onto our methods. Because if I tack a Bible verse onto my method to get buy-in, here's what happens. When it's time to change, people think I'm changing my theology, not my methodology. So you might have it, but don't give it to them, you know? Uh, just always say, this is for now. Because we're missionally focused and we're doing the methods that work best for now. But what happens is, and some of you had it, you changed your method and it was so tied into somebody's theology that boom, they just walked away. Or maybe they trashed you in the church on the, on the way out. I could end right now and I would have given you an incredibly, incredibly important tool for as you build your team. Just say no to people who don't have people skills. And just say no to inflexible people who agree with you right now. Because both of them will break your heart in the future. But this study also said the number one and two success factors. Would you like to know what those are? I mean, because we want to get a winning team, right? So the number one success factor was the ability to adapt. <laughs> Do you have a clue what number two might be? People skills. They played well in the sandbox. So in other words, those two things are the great divide between the people who will do ministry with you and for you, but eventually destroy you, and those who will do it with you and for you and for Jesus, and will help advance the kingdom. Don't 
ever ignore those things. When I read that, that study, I, it kind of freaked me out because I realized, like, if I just had read my Bible a little better, I would have picked up part of that. Because let's talk about people skills for just a moment. If I have a prayer language that can speak in the tongues of men and of angels, if I give everything I have, every paycheck I get goes to the poor to be able to help them. And I understand all mysteries, man. I'm the theologian of theologians and can unfold the scriptures, not only past revealed mysteries, but the future ones as well. And if I am so courageous that I am going to die as a martyr, singing hymns and praises as the flames lick at my feet, but I don't get along with people. What do I have? Nothing. On the way down here, I was talking to uh, my publisher. Uh, I'm tying around, I've been toying around for about a year or two with a book idea, and I finally called him and said, hey, I think I want to do it. And here's what it's going to be. It's going to be uh, something along the lines of things we preach but don't really believe. <laughs> like the body of Christ. You know, we keep wanting to make everybody like us. When it's time to disciple, we want them to be us, not who Jesus made them to be. I see really well, dude, how come that ear can't see what I see, right? We do that over and over. Our ripping on one church instead of another church belies that. The priesthood of believers is another area where we preach it, but we don't really believe it. Uh, sometimes grace. <laughs> We preach all about it, it's all a grace, it's all a grace, but man, once you screw up, and I want to tell you the gauntlet you've got to go through to be able to be used to Jesus again. Okay? And another one is that love is essential. It is so easy to ignore love because somebody is gifted, and it will always cause you to build a team by the losing team. I should have known that. Another passage of scripture on the importance of people skills and love. Uh, I used to call it that, uh, it's in Revelation, it's one of the seven churches. I used to call it the lo You Lost That Love and Feeling Church, the Righteous Person Church. You know, we'll cover. Okay? Because that's, and we preach on it. Man, we've lost our first what? Love. And we, when we preach on it, we use all kinds of illustrations about needing to be more passionate for God. Right? Isn't that where we go with it? That's where I've gone with it when I preached it. And, uh, you know, even using illustrations like, oh, man, remember the first time your, your spouse or, you know, like, oh, I remember calling Nancy and being so excited to talk to her. I remember the first time I held her hand. And then what happens over the years? You reach out now and it's like, oh, it's sweaty. <laughs> I'm traveling. Oh, I got a car. But here's the problem. The idea of confusing passion with commitment is gross. Because, yeah, I want to tell you, the early days of my... Uh, relationship with Nancy, yeah, I, I was like, oh, please answer, please answer. And, uh, you know, let me open the door and let me do all this and all that. But I want to tell you, that was puppy love. And it was all about what she was doing for me. Okay? Because had she stopped kind of doing it for me, filling that void in my life, then I'm on to find the one who can fill that void. But then we made a commitment. For us, it's been 40 years now. And at 40 years, I want to tell you, the honest truth is, I don't always remember to run and open the door like I did when I was dating her. I don't always remember to do, you know, all the kind little things I tried to do to win her over, but my love is a million times deeper. Yeah. You ever see the Mississippi River? Looks like a stinking lake. And what we want is white water. All white water is, is fast moving shallow water over rocks. That's all it is. 
And, and so in, in uh, our, our, our ministry, we got to make sure we've got depth and not just white water. But also, back to the church in, uh, in Ephesus, that was not a passionless church, folks. What did Jesus say about that church? I know your deeds are better than anybody else's. I know your determination is better than anybody else's. I know when everybody else grows weary and quits, you don't quit. I mean, that's the kind of church you get on a plane to go fly and go to their seminar. But he says, despite all of that great stuff you do, your doctrine's even good. I have this against you. You've lost your first. You know what the Greek word there is? It's the same one in 1 Corinthians 13. They have lost their agape, not their passion. And he says, I'm going to pull my candlestick. They were probably fighting over the music and the worship service. You know, they were probably fighting over the dress code. They were probably fighting over some why God knows what it was. And they probably lost their agape love for the lost as well. May, I would rather have a B player who loves other people than an A triple plus player who loves himself. Okay. All day long. And the flexible one I should have caught was uh, uh, what the Apostle Paul says in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. When he's defending his ministry, he says, I become all things for all people that I might reap some. Let me just kind of rock some of your boats in terms of uh, how, how, how flexible you need to be in ministry and your team needs to be. Have you ever noticed there's about this many verses, say, let's just pick one thing, written on eldership in the Bible. But we will write books this thick and what it means. Like we're like the Old Testament rabbis. Take the verse and expand it, right? But let me give you an example of flexibility. In Acts chapter 6, uh, we had the introduction of a group of people called deacons. Remember that passage? And so what we tend to do now is we, we want to be a New Testament church, right? How many of you want to be a New Testament church? Okay. The rest of you have read the New Testament. That's why you didn't read your hand. <laughs> like, really? So, so what, what happens is we read Acts chapter 6 and we think of, okay, how can I make sure I have in my church someone that's doing the deacon job? And what are their qualifications and all, right? We go right there. There's a more important lesson. You know what Acts chapter 6 teaches us? We can organize any way we want to fulfill the Great Commission. That's the lesson of Acts chapter 6. Flexibility is so important to your team and your future success. You see, I can imagine when the apostles realized we were no longer fulfilling our mission. We were not able to spend time in prayer in the Word. We're passing out too many checks and settling too many arguments between the Hellenistic widows and the Jewish widows. So we're going to start this new thing called deacons. And they're going to be godly people, but they're going to pass out the checks. I can imagine the pushback in that early church. I mean... Widow A is over there going like, oh, come on, man. Who's this Stephen dude? His stories are boring. I want Peter again. He's amazing. Oh, I just so love it. When, and I, you know, nobody from the church visited me. It was just a second class person type of thing, you know. And I, I can imagine all that. And then I know there was one little old lady who said, I read every word of Jesus in red. And he never said a word about deacons. It's not biblical. She would have been right. Did Jesus authorize setting up deacons? No. He assigned a great commission. Wow. 
Did Jesus authorize church councils? Did he say, hey, here's how you're going to solve problems? No. He authorized a great commission. And so as you build your team, this need to make sure you have people who truly have an agape love for those who disagree with them, not just those who agree with them, and those who are flexible enough to get away from their preferences is incredibly, incredibly important. I believe one of the reasons God has allowed North Coast to do some of the things uh, it's done in northern San Diego flows out of the fact that our mission statement is this, making disciples in a healthy church environment. And that the second thing in that phrase has been important to us as the first thing in that phrase. That we'd rather have, as I said, B players who love Jesus and love other people than A players who love themselves and insist that everybody stay out of their room. Does that make sense, Jim? Yes. Okay. So that's number one. Winning teams have winning players. Losing teams have gifted, you know, great players, but they don't win. Here's the second thing about difference between winning and losing teams. Uh, winning teams guard the gate. Losing teams let anyone in. One of the mark of a winning team is they understand the power of the locker room, and they don't just let anybody in. And we sometimes fall into that trap. We think we are Jesus-like when we let anybody in, but we are not Jesus-like when we let the wrong people in. Because yeah. I want to tell you, once you let the wrong people in your pen, it's hard to get them out. Right? Whether it be a, a board member, you have a structure like that, be it a, a staff member, uh, be it a, a key volunteer. Learn to guard the gate, because it is much easier to keep them out than to get them out. And there are, in particular, a couple of things you want to really watch for. Number one, as a kind of a sub of guarding the gate, is never ignore a lack of character because of an abundance of giftedness. We've already talked about two aspects of it, that flexibility and that loving others, but it, it goes broader than that. Never ignore a lack of character because of an abundance of giftedness. Remember, the New Testament church meant where? Help me out again. In homes. So when he appointed an elder in each, uh, in, in the various churches, he wasn't appointing elder boards, right? He was appointing leaders. And did you know that Greek word presbyteros? You know what it means in normal language? It means overseer. And I want to, here's, here's a weird thing we've done in our churches where we use sometimes, some use and some don't, but like that elder uh, concept, we raise the bar higher and higher and higher and higher. You know, uh, uh, robust theology and this and that. And I'm thinking, dude, in a house church, they didn't have robust theology. Because, like, Gutenberg hadn't come along yet, so nobody had a Bible by their nightstand and was journaling. Okay? But they could love Jesus and obey his teachings, all right? So uh, what, what happens is uh, we have forgotten uh, the requirements of, say, 1 Timothy 3 or Titus chapter 1. They apply to people who have spiritual oversight in small settings. And we pick in that list in 1 Timothy 3 and that list in Titus 1. We've raised the bar, just like the Pharisees raised the bar, like every my wife's an accountant, every profession raised the bar so nobody else can get in after they get in. And 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 we made it so high that it's just for like the top echelon of staff or lay leaders. Well, in reality, in a house church thing, you tell somebody, hey, when you're appointing people, press Buteros with oversight, they must be above reproach. 
Titus, he says, above reproach. And then he gives examples afterward. It's not an engineering checklist, because as it was, he forgot to give Titus all the ones he gave Timothy. Those are just examples of above reproach. By the way, a more modern-day phrase I like is no glaring weakness. It's the one we use at our church. No glaring weakness. What is a glaring weakness? When you say, hey, Larry's really good, but whatever follows afterward is your glaring weakness. Now, here's what I want to encourage you when you build a team. Don't ignore those glaring weaknesses. We actually have, this is description, not prescription, but we, we set out to all staff and our, our, our governing board, every person who serves in any capacity, it's called a red flag email. I got probably a bunch of them just since I got here. Um, and uh, it's on all our campuses, and all our campuses, the red flag simply says this. Hey, Larry Osborne wants to work in a third grade Sunday school class. Now, as you can imagine, a big church like ours, most things like, oh, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. But, but as I go through it, every now and then there's one I go, oops, or somebody else does. And we step in and we go, we don't care how gifted they are, how committed they are, if they're going to bring shame to Jesus. We had one time on one of our campuses uh, a guy who was really good at worship. And he was just about to uh, join the worship team. And the red flag went out, and none of us knew about this, but somebody said, hey, talk to me. By the way, we don't write what the problem is. We say, talk to me. Uh, and what we found out is uh, he had been kicked out of two Little League games and so was no longer allowed to go in that particular Little League to any games because he was dropping F-bombs on the volunteer umpire who was calling bad balls and strikes on his pitching side. Now, can you imagine that poor umpire comes to our church and there he is? Okay. But also, this whole principle applies everywhere because we, we, we get seduced by giftedness. In particular, there's a few areas where giftedness wins and we, just, we go, yeah, but then we close our eyes and plug our ears. Youth pastors. I'm a former one, so I'm speaking of myself. If you're a Pied Piper and you can get those kids all riled up, we just go, well, whatever. Worship leaders. Man, if you bring me before the throne, or at least I feel like that, I don't really care that nobody gets along with you. Would you agree? Well, that's just how they are, type of thing that I, you know, which is not true. That's not how worship leaders are. But the name gets out there because too often we've allowed great giftedness to overcome what should have been a barrier. And the next one is preachers. If you can bring the root, uh, the word, and the spirit uses you, it's amazing to me how many people go, well, we'll just ignore those spiritual things. It will work for a while. Okay? Samson was successful for 18 years. He was just about to release his book on how to be a successful judge when all hell broke loose. <laughs> Character always, always rules the day. Here's another one. Beware of Christian pit bulls and rottweilers. Wow. Have you ever met anybody who thought it was their duty to kind of protect poor old Jesus? You know, you know, they're they're either you know uh, searching everybody who's got a little goofy doctrine thing here or did something whatever. You know, they just they they're just always kind of a watchdog for Jesus to protect the church, right? You you, you know those kind of people. 
The problem is they haven't got the memo. Because baby Jesus maybe needed a watchdog, but King Jesus doesn't. Okay? He doesn't need that anymore. He's King Jesus. And whenever we take it upon ourselves to be a pit bull or a Rottweiler for Jesus, we're in the wrong job. And here's the danger we can have. You can put on your team people that are incredibly black and white and angry at all the people you don't like and you think that's a good thing. Man, they are angry at the world out there, the culture out there, the politics out there. They're angry at those, those particular brand of Christians that got this all jacked up, whatever it would be. And here's the thing. In his list to Timothy, Paul says, before you put anybody in any spiritual oversight, they can't be contentious. They can't be a fighter. The weirdest thing happens to Chris Brown, not that Chris Brown, a different Chris Brown, uh, who's the other teaching pastor on our team, and myself. We often have people come up to us, and, you know, they're trying to engrave themselves to us. And, and more or less, they just tell us how passionate they are for God by how angry they are at sinners. Okay? And what, what they're screaming out is, I'm a Rottweiler, I'm a pit bull for Jesus. And what they've learned over time that in most Christian settings, that brings you to the forefront. Because we admire their courage and boldness. But we shouldn't. Because the Bible doesn't say, don't put a contentious person for the wrong things there. It says, don't put a contentious person there. And here's what I can tell you. That Christian Rottweiler or pit bull who's been barking and biting and just protecting you like crazy will only do that as long as they agree with you. And do not be surprised when you do something they don't agree with or they don't like when they turn and fight and devour, bite and devour you. Okay? We just have, over the years, strong rule on my team. Angry Christians are not on my team. I don't even care if they're angry at the right things uh, because they will turn, fight, and devour. Let me give you a third one. Uh, the third thing when you build your team is, is to remember this. So winning teams make unity a priority. Winning teams make unity, and by that I just mean cohesion, getting along, kind of the theme of this particular conference, the relationship and all that. They make it a priority, but losing teams treat it as an afterthought. They go, oh, it'll take care of itself. This was one of my big mistakes in early years of North Coast Church. I assumed that if you love Jesus and were passionate about lost people and discipling people, that you and I would get along. I just thought, well, come on. And, and to be honest with you, I thought this idea of like, let's have a little retreat and ask each other, you know, what was your favorite restaurant going up? And, you know, like, life's, too hot. life's too short and hell's too hot to go there, man. Let's just go. <laughs> And so I just presumed upon unity. And the problem is, I didn't read my Bible. Because my bet is my Bible is like your Bible. Page one, who made it? Page two, the way it's supposed to be. Page three, why it's all jacked up. <laughs> and page four, one brother kills another brother over how to worship God. Right? Or two of my heroes. My New Testament hero is actually outside of Jesus, obviously, number one. But my, my uh, human one is, is Barnabas. But there's another pretty good guy. Have you heard of him called Paul? Okay. And they're both pretty good. Would you agree with me? 
Right? I mean, I'd love to have a bunch of Barnabases in my church. You, amen, too? How about Paul's? I wouldn't want to work for him, but I'd like a lot of them. (laughs) And what does the Apostle Paul say about unity? He says, make every effort, a Greek word for strenuousness and all that, as if it's, you know, just the fact that we're brothers and sisters in Christ doesn't mean we're going to get along unless we make every effort. Okay? And what happened? I think it's Acts 16 between Paul and Barnabas. You know the story? You know, uh, John Mark goes with them on a mission trip, and then he freaks out when things get tough, and he runs back home. And a few years later, it's time to go on another short-term mission trip. And the Apostle Paul says, I'm not going to take this guy with me. He abandons us. Man, he's worthless. <laughs> Which I love. The Apostle of Grace says this guy can never <laughs> I mean, the, the Word of God is inerrant. It is the Word of God that he used crooked sticks to draw straight lines. You know? so, so here you got Paul going, rah, rah, and you got Barnabas going, yeah, he gets another chance, dude. Like, think of the chances I gave you, Mr. Paul. Right? And the dispute was so great that they separated and never saw it. Now, if the Apostle Paul and Barnabas can have a church split, I better not presume that I could never be in the middle of something like that. By the way, just for free, we know who was right on that one. It was Barnabas, not Paul. Right? Because later in Paul's life, he says, hey, will you send John Mark to me? He's helpful. And besides that, there's a book in your Bible called Mark, written by John Mark. Now, I don't know about you, but if God's going to let you write the Bible, I'll probably let you go on my short-term mission trip. I just think you're qualified. And in terms of making unity uh, a priority, that means we've got to be proactive in it. What happened in the early days of my team is, again, I assumed our theology and our passion for kingdom work meant that we really knew each other, and it really wasn't true. As we began to go through some difficulties, we had some leadership retreats and all that, and we asked questions about where you grew up, and we asked questions uh, about your history, when did God become more than just a word for you, and all of that. And I was amazed how they didn't know each other at all. And I've also been amazed that the more we know each other's history, the more we understand and like each other. The bond becomes close. We were, uh, we've been very fortunate. We had, uh, I think it took us 25 years to have our first moral failure at North Coast Church with a leader. And then something happened as we were trying to figure out what to do with that that uh, I had not thought about before. And that is immediately my leadership team broke into two camps, the family camp and the justice camp. The family camp said, oh, the whole body's watching how we take care of one another when we struggle and we fall. And uh, he has a handicapped child. We need to make sure he gets all his medication and and needs taken care of for the next 27 years. We ought to put up a college fund. I mean, we just got to take care of this guy. And then the justice people over here were saying, yeah, I'd be glad he ain't aching. And uh, we need to, you know, do some major surgery on him, kill him, something, you know. So they, they want justice. And unbeknownst to me, that's a natural way, if you've gone through it, that's a natural way groups divide. And I'm sitting in the most hellacious leadership meeting I've ever been in my life. As really harsh things are said. 
And at that point, the other teaching pastor and I were on two different sides. Okay? And as I'm listening to this, I've never been at a board meeting where that kind of anger and frustration and those things were said. You know, the stuff that you brain debate for weeks afterward when you're taking a shower, driving your car. And then somebody thought, thought, well, we got a constitution somewhere, so we found it in a drawer. And, oh, okay, let's just do that. And nobody was happy, but it solved the problem. We all went home. And then we had a meeting three weeks later, and it was like nothing had happened. And it's not because we were dysfunctionally bearing it. It's because we were truly brothers in Christ. You see, we, we were like two brothers out in the backyard getting in a fight, letting one another's noses. One of them gets a black eye, and 40 minutes later, hey, want to play catch? <laughs> Is that how brothers do? And, and what I realized is all the stuff I'd written about, in different, I never had it totally to the test like this. And, and it was like, I am so glad we were proactive on building community. Because when a real crisis comes, there is not an easy answer. And you can't cut the baby in half. You can't take John Mark halfway and then send him back. You're going to have to go one way or the other. And if, you're really, if it's not really clear in Scripture, the Holy Spirit doesn't really reveal it to everybody, you're going to battle through all that stuff. And if you have built unity, after the fight is over, you'll want to play catch again. Too many of our churches have not built that kind of community. So when they have a legitimate fight, there are real disagreements. And people are really trying in their heart of hearts to hold true to Scripture. They're not trying to be a jerk for Jesus. They're trying to be faithful to Jesus. There's no ability to come back afterward. Because we haven't really built that kind of unity. We presumed upon it. Does that make sense to you? Yes, sir. Now, another side of making unity a, a, a priority is if you've got cancer on your team, you need to cut it out. Titus says, warn a factitious, divisive person. How many times? Help me out if you know the scripture. Warn how many? You should know this and start reading your Bible more. Warn them once, twice, and then remove them. Our problem in the church is we added like three zeros to each of those numbers. And let me tell you why. I, I know why you are hesitant to get rid of that person that dominates all of your, your mind. They're living rent-free between your ears. And, and they're, they're gossiping like crazy. They're doing all kinds of things here at the church. And then outsider says, why don't you deal with it? I know why you didn't deal with it. You're afraid of the collateral damage. Right? Hey, man, if, 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 if I deal with this, these families here will leave. And our fear of the collateral damage lets the cancer spread. My wife had a really bad case of breast cancer. It looked like she wouldn't live. By the grace of God, she's fine today. But it was a very dark time. And at that point, I had another friend whose wife was also going through the same thing. And both were young, which means with breast cancer, it's a greater likelihood of not making it. Uh, people go, oh, you're young and strong. You go, not with this one. And as we looked around back then, and things were even... Uh, rougher than they are now where we made a lot of advances we had a really hard decision to make were we going to cut out the cancer which meant mutilate her body 
which meant pour incredibly harsh chemicals into her body that would have huge impact, not only then, but still to this day. She wakes up with headaches and all kinds of other things that are the collateral damage of that. And we decided to do it. And here's what I tell you, the collateral damage was real, okay? I mean, it, to this day, if she was here, she would tell you, yeah, it impacts a little self-image, it impacts things, it impacts sometimes our relationships, it impacts her health, it impacts, it, it was real collateral damage. It was legit to be fearful of it. So now we're here at my friend and his wife, we're going through the same thing. They decided when they looked at all the stuff that I could give you in graphic detail that's even worse than the flyby I just did. They decided it wasn't worth it. But here's the problem. When I get home tonight, I'll give my wife a hug and a kiss. He gets to go set by her gravesite. In the short run, the collateral damage was worse. But in the long run, the cancer is always worse. You have got to deal with cancerous sin in the camp. If it cuts your church in half, it's still better than let the enemy get a foothold. Okay? And then I'll give you one more, and then I, I hope just have a few minutes maybe for some questions. Winning teams focus on their mission. Losing teams focus on their successes. Let me help you with the difference. Our mission is the Great Commission. Would you all agree? That's the starting point of it. So that's our mission. And pretty much, at least I hope you do, every time you start any kind of new ministry or do anything in your church, uh, you have a reason why you're doing it. Not just because every other church is doing it, right? Sometimes we do it that way. It reminds me, ever seen a real estate agent's business card? Help me out. See that, right? What do they all have on their cover? Their picture. Why? Because every other real estate card has that, right? It's like, I know who you are. You're right in front of me. And in reality, it hurts their mission because you go, oh, you're a man. Oh, you're a woman. Oh, you're old. Oh, you're young. It, it is of no help to them, but they do it because everybody else does it. So as you build your ministry, be asking what Jesus wants you to do to fulfill the Great Commission, not what every other church is doing. Okay? Uh, and, and so once you get your mission in mind, big picture and then little picture for each thing you do, you need to then articulate what the goal, what the mission is. And then you need to do this novel thing, check to see whether it's accomplishing it or not. We have all kinds of things we do. And I'll just give you that we end up counting successes at a mission. Uh, I served as a youth pastor in a uh, a large uh, church uh, when I was young. And uh, we provided great holiday entertainment. In fact, we were so good, especially at Christmas time, that we had to have program after program. Then we got better and better. We had to ticket it. And then we got so good, we had to do it all week long. And it was taking tons and tons of hours, tons and tons of energy, tons and tons of money. But we had to do it because every year it got bigger than last year. So we were counting attendance as the number one thing. Well, being a young youth pastor uh, with low EQ... In a staff meeting, I said, why are we doing this? Because I happen to have extended family that I want to be around. I didn't want to be that guy who's never at anything and, you know, whatever, uh, family-wise. So I just really didn't enjoy all that we were doing. And then he told me this. 
I said, oh, we do this so that people in the community who would never go to church will come to our Christmas week extravaganza. And then they will come back when they have a hurt in their life and will have a chance to minister to them. And I go, oh, I had no idea. I thought it was just holiday entertainment. <laughs> Forgive me. That's an awesome mission. Lord, what, how, how lame have I been? But then I asked another question. Has it ever happened? <laughs> and after hemming and hawing, they need three or four families that actually came on Christmas Eve and then came to Jesus later. And then I said something else that was why I wasn't there one. <laughs> I said, well, if you give me a tenth of that budget, I will lead ten times that many people into a lifetime relationship with Jesus. I but what had happened, and it happens to all of us, they got seduced by the bigger crowd, and they forgot the mission. It was as if over on this wall, uh, where one of those posts are, uh, I was uh, shooting arrows, and there's a, a, a target over there, and instead of hitting that kind of brown thing there, it hit the metal post over there. And then I shot another one, and lo and behold, it split the previous arrow. And then I shot another one, and it splits the arrows. It's like, dude, this is really good. So what do we do? We go take the target and put it where the arrows are landing. Again, this is description, not prescription. But I want to be clear enough that it really gives you something to grapple with instead of staying up here. But uh, like in our community, we don't do it anymore. But in our community, there's a thing called Vacation Bible School. And the purpose is to get these kids to come. And then you have a closing program. And you share the gospel and all that. Well, the fact of the matter is, it's just free babysitting for homeschoolers. And, and our huge, massive-sized church, I, I'm like really kind of sad because our people have figured it out. And all summer long, they go from church to church to church. They get free child care. And a little more of a like little Bible lesson for their kids, which is wonderful if that was the purpose. If their purpose was, we want to minister to Christian families so moms can get out a little time breathing room. And we want just one more opportunity to teach Christian kids lessons about the Bible. Then I go, go for it. Have three of them this summer. But when you tell me it's to reach lost people, and you ain't got no lost people, I go, you're chasing your successes, not your mission. I want to encourage you as you build a team. That your team be missional. That yeah. you ask the hard questions. Because no one ever attended for church to become church. The most dead church in your community never dreamed that, that that's not why they started. But they counted the wrong things. And when you count the wrong things, you put your picture on the front of the card, though nobody cares. Though it actually hurts you. Because everybody else is doing it. Winning teams know their mission. Losing teams focus on their successes. Last illustration with this, and I'll open for some questions. I'm a basketball fan. Actually, a Laker fan. So it's been, yeah, tough go. But I appreciate really good basketball. And uh, so uh, uh, I have a strong nod to the Warriors over the recent time because they play the way it's supposed to be played. But here was an interesting thing. 
The one championship out of the last run they didn't win was the year that they made the mistake of slowly sliding in their mission beam, having the best regular season winning record ever. We're going to break that. You know, once they got close enough to breaking that record of Michael Jordan and the Bulls, they pushed. And Steph Curry twists an ankle. He plays in the playoffs, but he's not Steph Curry quality. And they still almost win. And they lose in the last, like, 30, 40 seconds of the game. Of the seventh game. What happened? The mission is a championship. Not a regular season record. So I hope that's been helpful, challenging, giving some great And uh, I know a lot of you are introverts, so you do your best thinking on the way home from a meeting. I'm sorry. But uh, I, I want to give you a chance. Maybe there was something I said that needs a little more explanation. we got about 10, 11 minutes for that, and then we'll be done. Uh, but uh, let me give you that chance. Push back whatever that would be. And I'll try to repeat the question. Yes. What would be some examples of everyday stuff to building unity? One of the things that creates uh, camaraderie is time together. So some real practical things. The value of the retreat is not that we prayed a whole lot together, that we read the Bible, we all had our little times of solitude. Or it's just laughing in the van on the way up there. Yeah. Kind of like we heard earlier today, in the meantime, enjoying it. So, uh, you know, one of, I'll tell you another one, just to change the dynamic of our board, I, I think I'm talking about in Sticky Teams and Unity Factor, is we meet in homes instead of in a, around a table. Because when you meet somewhere around a table, it, the environment screams out business. When you meet in a living room, it says, screams out relationship. You can't be a butthead in my living room. It just doesn't work. But you can't be in a boardroom, okay? Here's another goofy thing we did. For years, we would have refreshments in the middle of our meeting because the guys who most needed to stand around and do small talk were the guys who left the moment the meeting was over. So we forced that among our team. So is that helpful? Those are things, right? Just time spent, experience spent. Uh, you'd be amazed. Uh, you could get more accomplished uh, going bowling together and laughing at each other and then having dinner somewhere uh, with the uh, guys and the gals on your leadership team than you can with another planning meeting. Uh, sometimes we get more spiritual than Jesus. Yes. What's best practice for cutting off the cancer? Best practice for cutting off the cancer. Number one, never do the surgery alone. Okay. Because you get into he said, he said type of things, okay? Uh, but the, So the best practice is a quart of three is not easily broken. I always try to gather with me some people who uh, are in leadership. Uh, the less said, the better. Uh, if it's staff, this is not working out is far better than all the reasons why it's not working out because it will be twisted. Uh, and then the next one is just be strong enough to say, sometimes when we do the right thing, the wrong thing happens. That's still okay. Because that's what we're afraid of. You know what? So, you know, it's like I'm going to do the right thing. Obviously, you approach the person one-on-one -on -one first. I'm assuming you've done all the things to see if this is just a non-malignant cancer. Okay? There was a hand in the back. Yes, real loud. Thanks. I appreciate what you're sharing about being a younger guy around the table asking questions that were irritating people. And uh, I appreciate that because I understand the heart that you're sharing there. 
you know, navigate the difference between good question, maybe not the right moment, the right spirit? How do you okay, yeah. So the question was, how do you navigate a team when you get somebody that's uh, got, you know, they're pushing back on everything? So here's a couple of things. I like to have an environment where it's okay to push back and disagree and agree to disagree, which is different than me always having to convince you that I'm right. Okay? What I can convince you of, and now many of you know we have more of a, a almost a co-pastorate sort of thing at North Coast now. By the way, we don't believe in co-pastoring, either Chris Brown or I. We think anything with two heads is a monster. Uh, but I'm not about to go, and he's too gifted to like wait in the wings until I die. So we had to figure out how do we do this. Uh, in fact, if you see Outreach 100 next uh, year, uh, his name will be first and mine will be second. And that's because we're changing seats on the bus, not because it's a succession plan and I'm leaving, okay? Uh, but, but what I always want, I'm going to go back to kind of the more classic head pastor thing, which, you know, I was for most of our ministry. Um, one of the problems that I always had is I thought I had to convince you why I was right rather than convince you that you were hurt. Big difference, okay? And then my card is not that I am right. My card is that God has placed me in the seat now and I have to make the call and I could be wrong. Let me tell you the humility that comes across by saying I could be wrong. But I've got to make the call. It's all the difference. And you're a young punk who hasn't experienced life. Did you see that? That's just massively different approach. And then what I find, and, and we had somebody a number of years ago who was reading too many books on, you know, reaching the next generation and all that, written by people who weren't reaching the next generation. <laughs> I remember one dude in the Northwest was writing all this stuff about how to reach people, and it was like a little slice segment. Of, in fact, his ministry started with, uh, um, what, what were they? He was uh, really big into English, so they were mostly uh, English students getting uh, uh, undergraduate and graduate with the graduate degrees in English. And I go, dude, everybody I know is trying to skip those courses. Right? So, he, so if you're aware of all the, always be careful who's writing this. Okay, because I remember as he was writing this, you know, I just look at one of our videos that was filmed with that age bracket, and I go, I got twice as many showing up every week than you do, and you're running around telling people how to reach it. Um, I, I think that at, at, at the end of the day, it's just important that people feel heard. And when you get someone like I, I know, I sort of got lost, you could tell. Uh, <laughs> The, the, the guy who was reading too many books, he took his ministry uh, uh, to 20, early 20s, from 180 or 20 down to like 40. And then he was still all the more going, this is how he reaches his people. It's like, you got to let them go. And it's not let them go because they're bad. I will wait too slow to let them go. You let them go because they want to go in a different direction. And in the body of Christ, it's okay to go in a different direction. But one car can only go one place. So what I don't want to do is denigrate the fact they've got a different vision. All I want to say is that vision doesn't work here because God has spoken to us. Is that, is that helpful? No. Uh, we too often have one loose. Yeah, wait the back. Cancer in the body or a cold? Cancer keeps spreading and gets worse. Okay, so, I mean, please don't call people 
divisive and cancerous because they said something not nice about you. I love what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. Don't listen to every word your servant says about you because you know that you too have said things about others. So, you know, like, I do not have Google search on my name. I don't want to see every time it pops up in somebody's blog ripping on me or our church or what. It's like I don't need to know it. And I realize that I have said things that I go, whoops, you're in the room. Oh, I feel bad. And, and, and so to me, it's a pattern. Also lying. You know, when, when, when you catch somebody and say, did you say this? And they pretty much know. I didn't say that. And you know better. That's far more cancer than, well, I was hurt, I was angry, whatever. One of my mentors taught me, go towards your enemies. Great advice, because we want to run from them. Okay? And you've got to run from dangerous ones. But most of your enemies are just people speaking unkindly about you, whatever. And, you know, if you know anything about boxing, uh, you know that if you're getting beat up, you, you, you go for the clinch. You don't backpedal. You'll just get hurt worse. You just go for the clinch. But when you get in the clinch and you find out if this, if this is helpful, it's like, no, it's just getting worse. It's getting dishonest. Then at that point, it's like, okay, we got to get the court of three and deal with it. Yes? Pastor Larry, thanks for the great ass session. Uh, you talked a lot about building. He said, Pastor Larry, thanks for the great ass session. <laughs> just in case any of you missed it. <laughs> I believe this is being recorded. <laughs> How do you shift course from a losing team to a winning team? Is kind of it. Uh, you know what? Some, sometimes it's just too deep. You got to start over. Uh, and but if you're going to make the shift, here's what you've got to do. You've got to be patient. Okay. You you cannot lead a turnaround church like a startup church because if you you have a past to protect. You also have a lot of past to get rid of. But if you only presume, the only thing that has a future only is a startup, business or church. It has no past to protect. By your four, it does. Okay. So you've got to protect the past the good while you create the future. That means it's going to be slow. You have to think like a glacier instead of an avalanche. Uh, we all overestimate what we can do in one year and greatly underestimate what I can do in five. Uh, I have a Churchill relative that was killed in an avalanche. You go there today, you don't even know what happened. I also have been on a cruise to Alaska where you go into Glacier Bay and they tell you you're going to watch glaciers move. That's exciting. <laughs> if the ice doesn't melt and a big old chunk calves off, doesn't calve off, it is the most boring day of your stinking life. <laughs> but it's creating a symmetry. So our biggest issue is our impatience. We don't give God the time to do deep things. We give him a rush to do shallow things. Just one or two more questions, and we'll end faithful on time. I'll try to answer questions later. Yeah, one. Um, yeah, we just launched a campus a couple weeks ago, and I think one of the issues that I'm finding myself in uh, is that the balance between needing a team and not getting burnt out Great question. Okay, the, just launched a, a, a campus, uh, and uh, the balance between not being burned out and not rushing too quick with a team, here's what you need to understand as a principle of life. For all of your team and yourself, you can't live on full RPMs all the time. Okay? But also, you can't go into the playoffs and treat them like the regular season. 
Opportunity and crisis, you play hurt just like you play hurt in the playoffs. Because you don't know if opportunity and crisis is going to come again. But you can't live your whole life like you're in the playoffs. So every time we launch a campus, uh, anytime we have a major crisis or a huge opportunity, it's all hands on deck and we are all gassed. Okay? I mean, we're gassed enough we start arguing in the back seat and, you know, griping the whole bad. We're pooped. You can't live there. But if you're unwilling to go there, you'll never accomplish anything great. Okay? You can't, you know, the playoffs are hard. Okay? You just can't live there all the time. Because the general rule of thought, Jesus said, come unto me if you're weary and heavy laden, and I'll show you what weariness is, sucker. <laughs> he says, and I will give you rest. The general tenor of my yoke is this easy. The general tenor of my load is this light. And there will be times where it's hard and heavy, and I will be with you. But don't choose that. Accept that. There is a difference. One more, and then we'll, we'll be done. Uh, sorry we're running out of time. Yeah. You said, uh, you know, uh, at one point, when you're dealing with teams and letting people go, less information is better, but like, how do you coach them? You oh, great. Oh, you're letting somebody go. Less information is better. How do you coach them? Uh, I, I was assuming something, and the assumption is this. Like, at North Coast, we don't even have uh, yearly reviews for anybody. Because we think if you're leading somebody, and they have to wait for a yearly review to know what they're doing well or bad, we need to fire you, not them. Okay? So we want real-time feedback. And so that's what solves the problem. You've been giving real-time feedback. It's been being ignored. Yeah. Now it's time to draw the line. You don't go back and go over the coals, all the details. It's just, it's not working out. Okay? Hey, thanks. God bless. It's a pleasure.